Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today, we're going back to Tennessee to talk to Darren Drake, whose wife, Jenny, we actually had way back on episode 11, which, as I say, that is kind of crazy to think that we've gone through nearly 60 episodes now, or 60 episodes, I think, this week that uh, that we're recording this. So it's been a wild ride, and I really appreciate everybody who's listening to these, and thanks so much, and I've really really enjoyed your support, and I'd probably do it even if I didn't have the support, because it's just a blast to get to talk to folks like Darren today, but I, I appreciate it nonetheless, but... If you haven't listened to that first episode, definitely take a listen back. Again, that's episode 11, Jenny Drake. Um, She shares a lot of great information, but today I'm looking forward to hearing Darren's perspective on their story and learning a little bit more about their Tennessee farm. So, Darren, welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thanks, Jared. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So so in that last episode, Jenny kind of talked about her background a little bit and stuff, and she had mentioned that you grew up on a farm not in Tennessee, and so if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about where you came from and some, sort of your ag background and what let you, led you down the grazing path and ended up getting you into the kind of the mountains of, or the foothills anyway, of, in, in Tennessee of where you're at. Sure. Uh, I was the eighth generation on our family farm. Wow. In Indiana, we were west central Indiana, just south of Terre Haute. Um, so there was a lot of history there. My folks ran a cow-calf operation when I was young. We had hogs. Coyotes put us out of the hog business in 1976. Corn, beans, wheat, and clover was kind of the crop rotation at the time. So we put up a lot of small square bales growing up. That's the way I grew up. I always knew that I wanted to be involved in cows. I tell people that was bred into me. Hmm. My dad is a cow man, uh, and that's just, that's what I've always wanted to do. Graduated from high school and uh, went to get a bachelor's degree in animal science from Oklahoma State University and then went to, well, as a lot of people do when they don't have a job, when they graduate, what do you do? You go on and get a master's degree, right? (laughs) Sure. So went to Purdue and got a master's degree in ag econ, came back to the family farm, worked there for a few years, and then obviously met Jenny, as she told in her story. Mm -hmm. The way that I got started in the cow business is... For most people that grow up on a family operation, dads and and sons, you know, there's always a little give and take, as I'm sure you're well aware. There's things you want to do that dad doesn't, that type of thing. Yeah. And that's kind of the way it was with my dad and my grandfather. My grandfather was slowing down and dad was taking on more responsibility. He had his own operation and then they worked together. And my Grandfather finally decided to sell out of the cow business. Dad was kind of pleased with that because then the cows would all be his, as you can well understand. Yeah. And so Grandpa sold out. And then about two weeks after he sold out, he decided that there was a little red heifer that he really wanted back. Okay. And so he traced her down. She had gone about 120 miles north. Oh, wow. And yeah, and bought her back. And then had to get my dad to go up and get her because my grandfather didn't have a truck with stock racks in it. Hmm. 
So you can imagine dad wasn't overly pleased with that. <laughs> yeah. And so he had one red heifer left. Dad ran, they, they both had black Angus at the time. Sure. Okay. And so we were in the garden later on that summer and that red heifer was a, a yearling at that point. And my grandfather just kept telling me, boy, isn't she pretty boy. Isn't she pretty, you know, I'd sell her to the right man if he'd come along with a dollar and his name on a piece of paper. So I broke into my piggy bank and got a dollar, wrote my name on a piece of paper. Yeah. And that's how I started in the cow business. That was when you had gotten home from college. You were young or early twenties. No, 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 no. This is when I was five years old. Oh, wow. Okay. I missed that part. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This is when I was five years old. Yeah. Okay. And so she cost me $150 and he kept Mm -hmm. track of it because 20 years later, the well, was probably longer than that. I, I found the paper that, that I had given him and he'd kept track, you know, every time I'd paid him $2 or $5 or whatever. Yeah. Took me two years to pay for her. But the interesting thing about that little red Angus cow is she had her first calf on my birthday, which was a big deal for a six-year-old kid, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that cow lived to be 15 years old. Wow. And had a calf every year but one. And you know, I guess because I was a kid, dad made the exception to keep her that year. Sure. But, you know, she was a thousand pound cow that would raise a 500 plus pound calf every year. Mm-hmm. You know, she was the right cat. The old grandma cows that Kit talks about, that's yeah. what she was. And that was how I got my start in the cattle business was, was her and her progeny are what put me through college. Mm-hmm. So that, that was how I got started and, and, in fact, I've still got some descendants of her to this day in the cow herd. Oh, that's so cool. And was was yeah. she, was that kind of the type of cow your whole herd was? Or was that unique uh, to have that that thousand pound cow look, that was weaning that kind of weights every year? Uh, well, at that point in time, you know, we're talking in the long before you were born, but in the <laughs> mid 70s. Mm-hmm. And so most people still had the, I mean, dad still had some little Angus cows that probably didn't weigh 850. Okay. And so in the mid to late seventies, you know, then the Simmental craze was the thing that happened in our area, which, you know, added more milk and growth and all of that. Mm -hmm. And we kind of got away from those small typey cows. Sure. Um, You know, and we followed in the early eighties, EPDs came out, EBVs and then EPDs came out and, you know, we followed those a little bit, did a little bit of AI work. And went the wrong direction, as most people did at that point in time, and then yeah. started making corrections then in the 90s um, and got started with Jenny was asked to do to speak at um, a conference by Alan Nation. I think it was down in Atlanta, maybe in the 2000, 2001, something like that. And mm-hmm. after he spoke he told Jenny that we needed to get in contact with Kit. And so that was our introduction into Kit. And, you know, we were doing the whole feeding cows grain. We didn't raise enough uh, hay in this area to feed cows. So I just haven't shipped in. Well, if you're going to ship in hay, you might as well ship in good hay, right? Yeah. Because it didn't cost any more to haul in alfalfa than it did fescue hay. Sure. We made lots of mistakes. Okay. Well, I made lots of mistakes. Let's let's <laughs> call a spade a spade. But 
And so that's, that's what we did. And then we got in with Kit as far as, you know, got onto his newsletter list and, and then a couple of years later went out and bought a bull and that's how we kind of started back down the path to where we needed to be with cow size. And we didn't have big cows at that point in time. Um, after Jenny and I got married, we traded the cow herd that I had for dad's um, heifer calf crop. And they, a lot of those cows were half jerseys, quarter jerseys. And so they were a lot smaller. And so that's, we weren't, you know, we didn't have 1300 pound cows, but we had cows that milked too much and couldn't sure. stay in shape. Sure. So. Sure. So I think Jenny touched on it a little bit and stuff, but I'd be curious more, a little more information on the transition from the home farm and that decision to leave, uh, Indiana, I think you said, and move to Tennessee yes. and how that all kind of fell into place. Um, as with most operations where the sun comes back, you know, as you've talked about on your podcast with several people, the pie has to get bigger. Mm-hmm. And you know, my dad was still in his 40s at that point in time. He wasn't ready to slow down. We're in grain country and you're familiar with that. That means there's not a whole lot of opportunity to grow a cow-calf operation. And so Jenny thinks it's just flatter than a pancake where I grew up, which yeah. is not totally true because i know what flat is uh, compared but, to where you are now pretty much everything yeah. <laughs> everything seems well, that's, that's, yeah that's that is true but she told me she wanted to go somewhere where there were hills and trees so sure well, you found we um <laughs> we did but it took us a while to get here what we ended up mm-hmm. doing was jenny got a job in virginia and so we moved to virginia mm-hmm. took the cow herd we had about 100 cows at that point okay moved to virginia we were there on rented property for a little over a year and that got pulled out from underneath us mm-hmm. all of a sudden. And then we mm-hmm. came to Tennessee and the way we ended up here, we were actually trying to buy this place before we ever went to Virginia. This place set on the market for a couple of years. And um, what had happened is the family farm had been sold. Everybody had aged out mm-hmm. and the men had, it was a, there were two couples here. They were brothers and there were, the brothers had died. So it was just the wives that were left and it was just more than they could handle. So they sold the farm to a timber company mm. and then the timber company owned it for the couple of years. And then we bought it from them and moved down here. And mm-hmm. so I tell people, you know, my cows went 1200 miles to get 300 miles from home. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, Oh, that's funny. It's funny how things work out, though, because you ended up on the place you wanted to be at in the first place, it sounds like then. We, we did. I mean, this place, as, as much as I like it now, was absolutely gorgeous at that point in time because it hadn't been cut for timber. So, you know, there were trees here that were four feet across, four and a half feet across. This place had never been timbered other wow. than for the houses and the barns, just whatever they had had used Sure. So at that point, was was there potential even to do much grazing or was it like overgrown woods or kind of more like a, I don't know if you call it a silvopasture or what, what was the landscape? No, it was, the surprising thing about it is that the trees were in the same places that, that they were when you were here. So it's just the really steep parts. Okay. Um, it's just that there were the trees, you know, 
because you're on this type of terrain, you know, there were a lot of 80 foot tall trees. Sure. And when they're that big, they, I mean, there was a lot of lumber that came out of here. The pastures were still what they are today. Um, okay. Basically the, the place had been farmed for years. I mean, typical Southeastern corn, cotton, you know, whatever they could, a lot of tobacco, of course. Yeah. Um, we were fortunate that this place was well taken care of by the family that owned it. Okay. You know, they tell the story that when they would plow these hillsides, most people around here, you, you plowed from the bottom up. And when you get to the top, as the mule would walk back down to the bottom, you just leave the plow down. And so you'd create a furry going all the way down the hill, which of course, as you're familiar with, washes terribly, but not on this farm. They carried the plow down the hill. You talk about work. Yeah. But that's, this farm was well taken care of over the years. And of course, okay. you know, we're blessed with water here. Mm -hmm. Just super blessed with water. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that, and if people don't listen back to the, the first one, Jenny talked about the slopes and stuff. And, and I guess I, I don't think I even saw the whole place, but I saw kind of around the place. Can you talk a little bit more about the landscape that you're uh, farming in and running cattle on and because the idea of plowing those hillsides blows my mind that it was ever done <laughs> based on what I saw, but maybe there's more to it. Well, no, I mean, when you drove in, came down the driveway, that field that just as you came out of the trees to your left, both well and right, both of those were farmed. Let's put it this way. I was, before we got on the podcast, I was running cows off the hill just above that on the left where you come in Yeah, and I was on the four wheel. And it's one of those where, you know, you, you keep one side, one cheek on the uphill side of the <laughs> four wheeler to make sure that it doesn't turn over. And even then sometimes it turns over. Yeah. yeah. It, it's steep. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's one of those, it's steep enough that I don't bush hog it. I pay somebody. And, and every time I get to thinking it's too expensive, I just get on the tractor and ride with him for a round and I decide it's not as expensive as I think it is. You know, I mean, trucks will sit on most of these hills, believe it or not, because I can drive across a lot of it. Um, okay. But that's obviously not recommended. Sure, sure, yeah. No, so when you uh, when you got there, was what was the original business plan? Had you always seen direct marketing as being a big part of your your farming goals, or did you kind of stumble into it when Jenny found a natural talent in in it, or? How did that kind of come to be? We pretty much stumbled into it. Um, I mean, we were doing some, we, we sold a few beeves while we were, that year we were in Virginia. And then when we moved here, we kind of cranked up the chicken operation because that was something that we could do without, excuse me, a whole lot of labor. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we were running a hundred cows. We, as you know, you can't make, a living on a hundred cows, even in 1996, you couldn't make a living on a hundred cows and pay for a new farm. Sure. Um, so that was one of the ways that we were attempting to, to make it pay. And then, and we also milked, I don't, I don't remember if that was a part of her conversation no, with you or not. I, I don't believe it was. I didn't know that. Yeah. We, when we moved here, we were milking, milking goats. And then within a couple of years, we started milking cows. So we sold dairy as not for human consumption okay. because of the 
state regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, when we were basically milking by hand to start with, and then put in a pipeline with mm-hmm. uh, a vacuum line with uh, bucket milkers. And so we got to where we were milking a little over 20 cows and, and about 40 goats for a while, probably seven or eight years. Okay. And back in Indiana, were you, your family had cow calf, was that a grazing operation primarily, or did you have a lot of crop country as well? And did you try to bring any cropping to this Tennessee farm or did you always know it had to be a grazing operation? I knew it had to be a grazing operation, um, and I don't enjoy crops. I don't enjoy riding on a tractor. That's Mm -hmm. not a thrill for me. They, I mean, dad farmed a a few hundred acres. It wasn't big, um, but it was a combination. I I would assume it was roughly 50-50 crops Mm -hmm. and and cattle. Sure. And what happened with the family farm back home then? Do you have siblings still running it, or...? Well, my dad still runs it. Wow. He he does the bulk of the work. My sister is still there. She's a couple miles from home. She and her family, you know, come and help when they're working cows or something like that. But, you know, dad's 80. He'll be, he'll be 81 this year. And he still does, I would say, 90 plus percent of the work. Wow, <laughs> oh, that's incredible. So cool. Well, I... Something that always fascinates me and intrigues me, especially being in the stage that my wife and I are now, you know, we've got our firstborn, we're still just trying to kind of figure out our, our path in, in agriculture and, you know, making something of our own. And so when you, I'd be curious to dig more into your kind of mindset of you and Jenny when you had just got this new farm and you're just trying to figure all this out. I mean, were there tough times? Was it a struggle? What were the things that you know, maybe kept you up at night early on, if you're willing to share any of that. And what were the things that just got you out of bed in the morning and stuff that you were just pumped about? And, you know, I think it's it's just the kind of thing that intrigues me, especially now seeing where you've gone. And Jenny talked about sort of the success that you've had and the, the cattle that you're raising and stuff. It's easy to get tied up in that, but forget about the early days that brought us to, I guess, where we're at now. Um, the, when we bought the place, you want to talk about struggle, it was a struggle because when we were in Virginia that year, we were in a part of the state where the soil is just absolutely depleted. I mean, worse than it is here. And so we had about a, I can't remember what the conception rate was, but 50 or 60% conception rate on the cows there. You know, so we got here with a lot of cows that were going from spring calving herd to a fall calving herd. Mm -hmm. And we went, I think it was almost 18 months without income. Wow. So you want to talk about what kept me up at night, (laughs) what made life difficult. That was it was trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what we were going to do to try to make this work. I mean, we obviously we'd sold calves before we moved down here, but it was, it was a struggle. You know, we, we didn't go places. We didn't go out to eat, you know, rice and beans, beans and rice is, as Dave Ramsey says, and there was a lot of that. Um, Fortunate in that one of the ways that we found this place, one of the guys that I went to school with at Purdue, his home place is across the hill from us. We actually join it. Sure. And his dad, he was, he was in law school at the time, but we were 
I was helping his dad out. His dad was a little older and, you know, doing the things like when cows needed to be gotten up and worked and that kind of thing. And so, you know, that was one of the things that was helpful to us in, in getting started here and getting it worked into the community. You know, one of the things that I never realized until many years later was that if I was out of town, Mr. Jerry, my friend's dad, would oftentimes come over, pick Jenny up and take her to the local country store, you know, so they could get a Coke and sit and visit for a while, which obviously, you know, those kinds of things are important when you're a young couple, you're new to an area, you don't know anybody. And those are some of the things that I think probably we in agriculture don't do enough of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we moved down here, I've got a good friend of mine who used to run the local co-op and he said yeah you moved in here and you had brought all these cows and brought all these wild ideas and we were just waiting to see how long it was going to take for you to fail and i suspect that was the general consensus of most everybody around here because we just you know we weren't from around here this was a small town and at that point in time you know nobody moved in here mm-hmm. people you know it was people's kids that bought neighbors farms and you know, that was just the way that it was. And I think that's one of the things that that we're not good about in agriculture. You know, we're always ready to help, but sometimes we don't actually go out on a limb and say, you know, if you ever need anything and introduce ourselves to the new people that move that move in. Sure. you, you, You had talked to somebody about the mental health aspects of, you know, some things. I know, was it Kat that had spoken about some, you know, some of the times when she was by herself and she had the kids and yeah. how it could be difficult. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. I, we, that's one of those areas where we need to do a better job of reaching out mm-hmm. to people, because even those of us who you know think we don't really need any help, we need people to talk to, and that's one of the things that I, you know I wanted to, not to cut to the end, but one of the things that I wanted to say, yeah. In watching your podcast and, and listening to your podcast, the one one of the things that I have picked out is the fact that when we get so busy that what happens is we fall into a rut and usually it's an old rut, things that we used to do that's just habit. You know, we thought we'd gotten past it. And, and you know, I'll give you my example. My example is when I went to Greg Judy school and Ian was there talking you know, and he made the comment, you know, all of your cattle should be in one herd. He said, but don't go home and do that. Well, of course, what did I do? I came home and I did that. And I remember calling Fred, which you've met Fred, a good friend of mine that, you know, you've met out at um, Kits at the, at the Colorado sale. Yeah. And, you know, I told him 30 days after that, how much of a relief it was and how much faster it was to check cows and take care of things. And yet, you know, we've gotten so busy because of the whole COVID thing. You know, mm-hmm. we haven't had good health. Um, I mean, I think Jenny told you, you know, we've got Miss Tina. That's the only full-time help that we have. Mm-hmm. And so you fall into those ruts. How, you know, how am I going to move 300 pairs from one yeah. farm to another trailer? Mm-hmm. And so the answer is that you just, you know, you put 100 cows on this place and 100 cows on that place. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't get anything done. You know, there's times when you know, I don't see some of my cows for three weeks. Yeah. That doesn't, you know, that's not exactly good animal husbandry. Obviously we've 
got a good cow herd and they take care of themselves. But, you know, that's one of the things where I, I think one of the biggest benefits, you know, you've got the discussion list, which is a big deal with mm-hmm. kits after you buy a bull. I think even more important than that, and I think this is something that a lot of your your listeners should consider is going to an actual sale Mm -hmm. because I got more out of going to the sale and talking to the same people year after year, you know, about what was going on in their operations and what, what kind of things were they doing and what kind of problems were they having and how did they deal with some of that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I haven't, I'm, I'm going to go to the Missouri sale next week, but Mm -hmm. you know, I I haven't been for three or four years and I miss that. Yeah. miss that mental, I don't, it, I don't know if it's a challenge. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly what it is. And yeah. Yes, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And and you've got to do things to get out of your comfort zone. Obviously, you've mm-hmm. talked to Jenny. You know, she's the extrovert of the two of us. <laughs> I'm a little more introverted. Um, so I don't get out and do those things as naturally as she does. And, that, sure. and the truth is that's probably a fault of mine. Well, it's not probably, it is a fault of mine. Um, so I, I think that's where some of the things that we need to do in agriculture is reach out and, and include people more because we all benefit. It's not just the person asking the question. Sometimes it's the guy answering the question that in his answer, he realizes something that maybe he could do a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah. Or something that wasn't intentional, but yeah, brings light to something that he has witnessed, but not thought about. Yeah, I, I think you're totally exactly. right. And, and I and I appreciate what you said about the podcast and stuff too. And all of these things are, in my opinion, like I listen to a lot of podcasts about a lot of different topics. And a lot of times you hear a lot of similar stuff. I mean, when you, you know, it's, it's similar stuff, but you may not necessarily in every single podcast pull out something new, but for folks who are in an area that maybe don't have other people doing the same thing, or you get a lot of negativity from your neighbors and your coworkers or whatever it is or something, to me, it's always just been like this reassurance every time. It's like, okay, you know, there's one more person doing this. It's a reminder. It gets you re-pumped up again about what you're doing. And same thing when you get around people, you know, you seek out the people that it may not seem like they're out there, but I've yet to find a region or an area that doesn't have somebody doing some of this different philosophies, regenerative ag, when you start right. actively seeking it out. And yeah, so you, you're right. And the folks that are doing it, yeah, if we can more intentionally engage with, with others or new, new folks that, that you see trying some of these things too, how big of a difference that can make in their lives. That's, that's a good point. In, in answer to your, uh, that was a long winded answer to part of your question, but the the other part about what got me out of bed, Mm -hmm. um, the truth is probably a lot, a big portion of it was just simple stubbornness. Um, you know, I mean, Fred has asked me repeatedly, why in the world did you come to this part of the world to try to run cows? All there is is rocks and hills here. Hmm. And, you know, I, it's, I wanted to prove that it could be done. Mm-hmm. You know, with the dairy, we had a, we had a grass-based dairy. We didn't feed any grain. Mm-hmm. You know, this is in the early 2000s. How many people were there doing that? Not very many. And so, you know, that's, that's part of it. And I think, going off on a little bit of a tangent, but I believe that, um, you know, the man's responsibility as head of the household is to provide. Now that doesn't mean he has to be the one making all the money, mm-hmm. but it's his responsibility to see that everything's covered. And so that was important to me. 
to make sure that, you know, if we had to do without things that I tried to make it where I was the one that was doing without, not that Jenny was that, you know, I mean, we always had groceries. It wasn't, mm -hmm. things weren't that tight, mm -hmm. or, but I think that's one of the things that sometimes we get our heads, we, we forget to get those things, our prior, I guess what I should say is we forget to get our priorities laid out the way they need to be laid out. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and I think that's one of the things that, well, it's, that's important. It's important to me personally, you know, obviously, um, I'll leave it at that. Well, you kind of got into a topic that if you don't mind me asking more about, I, I think it's, I think it's really important to realize, I mean, in talking about the struggles and the work that you've done, but also prioritizing your wife in a marriage and through all that, um, I mean, how did you do that? It, it maybe helps that you were both on board and working together towards something, but is there something else that you would attribute sort of to the success of your marriage through the challenges that you, you face building this farm and this operation? We're both extremely hard headed. <laughs> I mean, that's neither one of quit is not in either one of our vocabularies. Right. And unfortunately I think it's too easy to quit for a lot of mm -hmm. people. Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, there were plenty of times when we, we had marital difficulties, um, you know, but, but neither one of, walking away was not an option. We didn't consider it an option. We never considered it an option. Um, I think one of the things, you know, we had premarital counseling, which is a little unusual, especially, you know, cause we're talking about the mid nineties, early nineties. Um, and we were older, you know, we were in our mid twenties. So it wasn't like we were kids, but the advantage to premarital counseling, I think is the fact that it makes you think about other things. You know, Jenny had some health issues growing up. And one of the questions that I was asked in a premarital counseling was how will you handle taking care of Jenny if she's sick? Well, you, you don't think about that when you're dating. I mean, you know, yeah, you're going to say in sickness and in health till death do you part, but yeah. you don't think about the fact that, you know, she blew her Achilles tendon. She was laid up for three months. She couldn't do anything. You know, not that it would, I've never considered doing anything other than taking care yeah. of her. And obviously I had a lot of help, but, yeah. but those are things that you have to be willing to go through to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you just have to make a commitment to each other and you're right that you both have to be, you know, it's a, what I can't remember the Bible verse, but about pulling in the traces equally. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm at a lot that that's Jenny's the Bible scholar. I'm not um, <laughs> being equally yoked, I think is the way it is. Yeah. And I, I that is important. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you're not always going to agree. Lord knows that we don't agree all the time anyway now. And we've been married almost 30 years. But I just think that it's one of those things that you have to, it has to be more important than anything else. You know, the farm could go away tomorrow, but you're still married. And so it's, the other part about it is make sure you pick the right person. I mean, yeah, you know, I waited a long time, or I thought I did. I got a good friend of mine that waited a whole lot longer, but it's important to make sure you pick the right person. And as you know, emotions run high. 
when you're dating somebody that you think is going to be the love of your life, but you kind every so you kind of have to set the emotion aside and make sure that you know you know be a Spock for a little while and determine you know what the logical response is. You know what what does this is logically make sense? Are you going to be able to work together for the next forty years? Do you have the same goals or similar? They don't have to be the same. And so I think that's that's you know I think that's how you how you make it through those tough times. Now obviously you know when you add kids into that mix. It makes it even more difficult. There's a lot more demands on your time. You know, Jenny and I did not go that route, but you still have to, you know, the kids are going to grow up and leave home. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you're still going to be married to your spouse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about priorities. I don't know if that answers your question. It, it does. It's it's great. I, I love, I mean, ranching is, and, and agriculture is such a unique industry, I think, because it's so intertwined with life and families in a way that so many jobs and businesses aren't. And so it's easy to, it's maybe easy to not talk about those things and stuff because they're, you know, nobody thinks that they're connected to farming and agriculture and this is an ag and ranching podcast, but they are so intertwined. So I appreciate those perspectives because everybody, you know, everybody married in a ranch business is going to face some of those challenges. And I think everybody's perspectives, especially those who have done it and in, 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 are, are succeeding, you know, in it and stuff, you know, have valuable perspectives to share. So thank you for that. Um, one, one small thing that I would add to that, though, mm-hmm. make the time because you're young. You've, you've got a, you've got a huge amount of demands on your time with with a new baby. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we did once we got down here is we, we had a date night. Now, that's a little more complicated for you, but I'm sure your mom and dad would be more than happy to take the baby for an evening. And you guys just the thing is, you don't have to go out and do anything because there's going to be times when you don't you can't afford it or there's not something that you want to do. But it's just the two of you. It's not farm. It's not work. It's just the two of you, you know, go out, go to a movie, go out to a restaurant and eat you know, sit in, you know, watch something on Netflix, whatever. But the, the, the important part about it is making the time to be with, with your spouse, that that is your time and you have to make a commitment to it. You know, I mean, yeah, if the cows get out, then you may have to reschedule, but short of the cows getting out, you need to stop what you're doing and, and have a date night. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's, I've heard that in other, other podcasts that I listened to as well. And, you know, somebody who talked about the importance of setting aside at least one week a year and going on a trip, you know, that time, how important it is, not just for your relationship, but it's, you know, kind of a, especially with a lot of folks whose wives and families may not be as engaged in the business as you are, um, how important it is for them to respect them in a, in the way and to love them in the way that shows, you know, I'm willing to set aside my love of work and stuff for at least this amount of time to focus on you and prioritize you. And, you know, so yeah, it's a good, that's a great point. Great point that, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I'll admit, like you said, I mean, with a kid and and when we're in this stage now where it seems like trying to prioritize working hard to get ahead and stuff to set aside a night or time when you could be productive, you know, in the dollar and financial sense, uh, to set that aside for something else is it can be a challenge, but it's something that we all probably need to focus on more. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. No yeah. Problem. Um, so 
I guess back to your your business. I think you talked about or your your farm and your ranch there. I, I'm curious, actually. Do you call it a farm or a ranch? Because I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, being a kid of the Midwest, it's a farm. Okay. You know, I I guess that's that's. Yeah. You know, I would like to call it a ranch, but it's not really <laughs> big enough to call a ranch. I don't. You know, I don't know where the line is. Yeah. You know, I used yeah. to think. I used to think if it was over 200 cows, you could call it a ranch, you know, mm. but we only own 300 acres. So that's not, yeah. that doesn't, so yeah. I don't know, but we call yeah. it a farm. Okay. I think we're pretty much in the same position here in Southeast Minnesota. When we're surrounded by corn and beans to call it a ranch almost feels hypocritical or something, even though we're primarily right. all grass with a few hundred cows. But I, so I, I hear your, uh, <laughs> I hear the dilemma or I, I uh, understand the dilemma, but, uh, um, I was curious, but anyway, with your, your farm early on, then you talked about having cows. I think that you were feeding some grain to a little more high input, um, early two thousands, getting exposed to kit. Talk a little bit more about that. Those early days of the actual genetics and the cow herd and how they fit in your environment at the start and how they transition, you know, kind of through that process. Well, like I said, you know, there was a, a fair amount of Jersey blood in them. I mean, they still had a red Angus, Angus Hereford base. Um, milk production was too high in body condition. It was hard to keep them in, in condition. They were obviously really fertile. Um, that, that Jersey makes a big difference, but, but we had trouble getting cows bred and I don't know, we just seem to have some mystery things that happen. I, you know, I suppose they're that way on every farmer ranch where you end up with a year when just things go haywire and you end up with a bunch of dead calves and. Um, we had, you know, a couple of those for no apparent reason, but then I think I bought the, the first bull I bought from kit was a composite bull in 2001. I brought him back and at the same time I was buying, buying bulls, the, the friend of mine that lives across the hill, I started managing his cow herd as well. And so I was buying bulls for him and bought some black bulls for him. But the composite bull we used on our cows, he got hurt during the breeding, his first breeding season. And I ended up with one heifer calf out of him. But that cow lived to be 19 years old and had a calf every year. Wow. Now, That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, she was, she was too big. She weighed, she weighed about 1250. Mm-hmm. And she was a little taller than what I would like, but you know, that's obviously from the dam side of the genetics, but she stayed in condition. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, even at 19, she still had decent teeth. You know, it was just, these hills were just getting to be too much for her. Sure. Um, and so that's what we started with was the composite, you know, went back the next year and bought another composite bull and that bull that bull is the one that made the most difference in our operation. He was, um, like I said, he was a composite. He was a small bull and he stamped all of his calves. He was a little bit brindle colored and, you know, you could breed him to a 1300 pound cow and he would produce a thousand, 1050 pound heifer that could stay in condition. You know, I, I think we kept him for nine years. I have no idea how many hundred cows he bred. Um, but that was kind of the, you know, when his calves came along and started to work into the cow herd, that's when we figured that we, you know, maybe, maybe we'd done something right. And so we stayed with the composite. I bought a couple of red Angus bulls 
Um, we did a little bit of AI work as well. And, you know, the big thing for us has always been trying to keep cows in condition. These are old soils. And so, you know, they don't have a whole lot of kick to them. Mm -hmm. So that's been one of the things that we always, you know, like I said, I'm going to the Missouri sale next week and I'm looking for another bull or two. And, you know, those are two of the things that are high on my list. You know, mm -hmm. if kit, yeah, you know, I really like a five star for those, you know, I'll consider a four or four plus if he's got other characteristics that I like. Mm -hmm. But that's that's always been the biggest criteria when we're looking on the paper side. And then when we're actually doing the evaluation, of course, in this part of the country, feet and legs are extremely critical. Sure. Uh, there's just so much rock that if a bull doesn't have good feet and legs, as Jenny said, and you know, in her, her thing, you know, we bought plenty of bulls that we didn't get any calves out of. And it was generally because of feet and legs. Okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No. So, so through the years then now it, your herd, is it pretty well adapted to your environment then, or you're still working towards that finding the flesh that you need and the, the breed back percentage has improved or, um, not as much as I would like it to, but that's a management issue. Okay. Um, and of course, as you know, 90% of everything is a management issue. <laughs> um, but it's, we brought some cows in when we were going through an, our expansion phase a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And those cows were bigger, you know, more of the type that we had 15 years ago when they just didn't have, they were bigger than what we had 15 years ago, but condition wise. And so we're trying to breed them back and get that part of the herd back to where it needs to be. Sure. Um, the biggest thing for us is making sure that we've got enough fall pasture going into winter. If we can keep grass in front of the cows, our cows will stay in condition. Okay. Um, we used to have a place rented up on the mountain and, um, had a guy take care of them and those cows would get a little bit thin come February. I'm, I'm talking about fall calvers. Okay. So they'd have calves on them. They'd get a little thin, you know, but come the first of June, you know, we're, we're weaning off 550 pound calves. The cows are in a body condition score of five, five and a half at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, the cows, I mean, that's the cows can do it. And so, you know, when I, when we have problems getting cows bred, I, I have to look in the mirror because I know the cows can do it. It's what did I not do sure. that kept them from, from getting there. Yeah. Yeah. It, so you, you've kind of touched there on like winter grazing and setting aside pasture. Can you talk about your, your management and how you talked about, you've got hundred cows in different places. You got pasture kind of all over the place. It sounds like, how are you managing your cows? When are you calving? How are you getting through winter? Do you need feed? Just kind of the whole management structure of a Tennessee mountain Hills ranch. <laughs> um, do you want the way it should be done or the way that it's unfortunately gotten in the last couple of years? Um, <laughs> that's a good at, question. You know, I mean, that's why I was alluding to that point of, you know, being mm -hmm. reminded of the things that we know that we need to be doing. Sure. Um, with, like I said, with the whole COVID, when COVID hit, we had, you know, Jenny and myself and then Miss Tina, our, our customer service person who, mm -hmm. you know, as Jenny said, is kind of the glue that holds everything together. 
you know, that was it. And we went from from having 60 CSAs to 160 CSAs. Wow. Oh. And, you know, and that's something that we have to do every month. Yeah. And so the workload just became astronomical. And that's why, you know, I was talking about, you know, not seeing cows for three weeks. I, mm -hmm. there, there just wasn't enough time. Yeah. And so what I, I was talking to somebody the other day that about when the right time to calve was, and I've had this conversation with Kit and what we had, we had originally started out in, in you know, calving in sync with nature. We thought that sometime the first of May was probably the time to be doing it. That's a few weeks before fawns start hitting the ground. Mm -hmm. And that works pretty well. Ha did work pretty well, except for first calf heifers. And by the first of May, first calf heifers just are not in good enough condition to then rebreed. Hmm. So we pushed it back to the first of June. That took care of the first calf heifer issue. The problem for us is that in September is generally when our body condition goes down, particularly if it, if it, if we don't get any rain. Sure. And so I was telling him the other day, I think we may, you know, the whole, climate change. I mean, we know that the climate changes. It, it has for millennia and it'll continue to do so. Mm -hmm. But I think specifically for us, I think we probably need to move back to the middle of, of May because not that it's not that we're really getting green up that much earlier, mm -hmm. but our heat extends into September so much longer that the quality sure. of our forage goes down so, so badly unless we start getting rain. And so I think that's the time period that, that we should be calving if we're going to be in sync with nature. Now, the caveat to that is the fact that if we have fall calvers and I'm taking care of my fall calvers and making sure they've got grass in front of them, mm -hmm. my fall calvers, my wet fall calvers will be in better condition coming out of the winter than my June calving cows. Yeah. Like right today. Yeah. You know, and so then that makes me go, so does that mean we need to be all doing all fall calvers? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the short answer to your question is that I don't know what the right answer is. You know, I told somebody if I could breed in October and calve in April, that'd be great. But <laughs> yeah. it just doesn't quite work that way. Nope. <laughs> that does not work that way. Yeah. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. And it's, it's, yeah, it's the, it's a challenge everywhere, and I, I'm sure. And so, it's uh, and, and that's incredible that your your business and stuff took off. I know COVID was great. If there was a silver lining to COVID, it was direct market meat sales and stuff. But that obviously yes. adds some stressors and some challenges. We saw it as well. And kind of the big question going forward now is how do we plan? I don't know. Do you guys have a plan going forward, estimating what you can take out of? The last couple of years as maybe continuing sales i guess your csa model maybe is a little more consistent than bulk sales but um sales in 2021 were down about 15 percent from from 2020 sure which is still you know 20 percent above what they were in 2019 or yeah. something yeah um the big we i mean the big issue for us is obviously processing mm. i mean mm-hmm you know, we hang for 21 days and most processors just don't want to do that anymore. And so it's become more of an issue for us to find 
and I mean, you know, and I, I have you to thank for the fact that we're actually trying to go to North Carolina to get some oh, cattle nice. processed. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I talked to Patrick and, Good. you know, I would have never known about him had I not listened to the podcast. Yeah. So, you know, thanks for that. Awesome. Uh, oh, I'm glad that we're, worked we're out. To get that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, and, and, but once again, that comes back to the whole thing of, you know, listening to your podcast, doing something a little bit different, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, podcasts, I, I never listened to the podcast until about two weeks ago. You know, that sounds terrible. My wife you interviewed my wife and I didn't even listen to it for almost a year <laughs> after she was on. And then, and then as I think I told you, you know, I listened to all of your podcasts over the course of about a week and a half or something. And it's, Which is it's thoroughly simply impressive. because, <laughs> like, well, you don't realize sometimes how much time you spend in a vehicle. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and that's, and so, you know, that's one thing of making better use of your time. Mm-hmm. But the other part in answer to your question about the management, you know, this is fescue country, mm-hmm. indified infected. When we went through the drought in 06 and 07, I believe it was, you know, we were probably at that point, we were probably 90% fescue, 85% fescue. We probably those few years afterwards, were down to maybe 50 or so. And I, I think we've probably gotten to the point where we need more fescue so that we can have more winter pasture. Sure. You know, that's just something that we need to do a better job with. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where we're moving towards. I mean, obviously we you know, do a lot of, you know, we've done mob grazing, rotational grazing, and obviously, then that makes a big difference in what is growing out there. But your management can change what you have out there in a relatively short period of time, in mm-hmm. my opinion. It, it It's just a matter of having the discipline to, to make the changes that you want to make. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that, yeah, you're looking to go back to more fescue because I guess I thought after having seen some animals impacted by that endophyte infected fescue in summer heats in those areas that people were not fans of it and people were trying to get away from fescue but it's uh it's that winter stockpile that it's really important for it sounds like it it is i mean obviously you don't i mean we're we're trying to get closer to you know a 60 or 70 percent fescue probably but i'm talking about that may not be actually how much they're ingesting that's just kind of that would be the dominant species. You've got to have more stuff out there, especially legumes, forbs and legumes, because fescue will just quit in this country. Mm-hmm. If it, you know, if we don't have any rain for two weeks, it gets dry in a hurry, which I'm sure I would assume that you're probably in a similar, it might be a little bit longer for you, but yeah, this is not like out West where, you know, you don't worry about it for two months. Yeah. No, it quick responses to moisture for sure. Yeah. Um, But I'm curious, and I didn't ask or mention this at all earlier, and so if you don't want to talk about it, that's 100% okay, and I'm not exactly sure um, where it'll go with it. But I'm curious if you have plans. You mentioned that you don't have any kids coming up or anything in the farm. And Do you have a plan for the business and the the ranch or the farm transition? And totally fine if you don't want to talk about that, but I'm I'm curious if that's something that you and Jenny talk about. Um, We have talked about it, yes. We don't have a plan. 
that's okay. that's the short answer. Um, the truth is, I would say our hope is that we get somebody that comes through the internship program sure. that then wants to come back and work here post-school and potentially take over. Uh, about the only other option I would say for us is you know, selling the meats business as a, as a working business, you know, I guess if you want to use that as a retirement source or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as the cattle operation, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take somebody, some young person wanting to come in and, and do some semblance of what we do yeah. to, to take it over. I mean, you know, obviously I told you my dad, he'll be 81 this year and he really hasn't slowed down a whole lot. So if I'm anything like my dad, then I guess retirement's probably another 30 years away or something. Yeah. So I, yeah. I have a little time. Yeah, no, plenty of time. And, and, and I just, I guess I was just curious on that. And it's actually, you, you mentioned the meat business and it's kind of cool when you think about it that way is that that really is, especially at the scale that you've developed its own valuable business model that is worth something independent of the farm operation that if you wanted, I'm sure would be worth quite a bit. Uh, so that that's neat that you've developed that that business that you can. Well, I mean, it's something that we think about because, uh, you know, when that came up on Kit's list, and I know you talked to Jim Garish about it with mm -hmm. the, you know, where's the place to go? Uh, you know, that as you recall, when you when you drive up to our place, you drove through some woods before you actually got on to our place where it opened out. Mm -hmm. They just recently sold one side of that the other day a couple of weeks ago and it brought them all, I think $8,000 an acre and oh. it's rocks and trees. Yeah. Wow. You know, I mean, there's nothing there. I mean, yeah. there's, it's 25 acres and there's an acre and a half of, of grass on it. And it's like, you know, do we want to stay here? And so you think about, well, you know, you could sell the farm, you know, and do a transfer where you swap for something else. But then what do you do about the meats business? You know, the meats business you know, if we say we went to Missouri, took Jim's advice and went to Missouri, mm -hmm. well, you, it's a little difficult to pick up this business and move it 500 yeah. miles, 600 miles, mm -hmm. you know, so it, it brings its own set of challenges to the table. If, if, if moving is something that you want to do and don't get me wrong. I mean, we like where we live, Yeah. but if somebody came along offering that kind of money for this place, <laughs> I, it would be kind of hard to turn down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't blame you a bit. That is wild because, you know, I thought we, we were out of line here and I just heard of a prime tillable ground selling for thirteen five an acre, but that's at least able to produce something out of it. And now people are paying exactly. that kind of money uh, for just a nice view and a place to put a house, I suppose, or a cabin or something. That is exactly right. That yeah. is exactly right. I wow. mean, that's what's happening. You know, I mean, we're an hour from Nashville. Yeah. And oh, so sure. that's... Yeah that's what it is. is mm -hmm. And, and for whatever reason, well, I know what the reason are, they're politics, but the, mm -hmm. we have a lot of people moving into the state of Tennessee from California, New Jersey, New York, you know, and, and if they've got any property in those places, you know, paying $8,000 an acre for something here in Tennessee is nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's the truth. The last couple of years have been wild. So it'll be interesting to see where all this shakes out <laughs> in a few years down the road. But that's for sure. Yeah. Um, 
Is there something else? What else would you want to share with listeners? I guess here you, you, you've shared some great value that I really appreciate you sharing, but um, any other thoughts you've got? Um, I, if you're a young person getting started mm-hmm. or wanting to get started, I think you've interviewed a, enough people to show that there, there are people out there that are willing to help, mm-hmm. but you have to make an effort to go find them. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily going to be your next door neighbor. It may not be something that you can do right where you want to, um, but you've interviewed several people that basically started with nothing mm-hmm. and have created pretty impressive businesses just yeah. through hard work and and knowing people. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's one of the things that I would say is that you know there are a lot of opportunities for young people to get into agriculture. And, you know, buying $8,000 an acre land doesn't have to be one of them. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And your story is one more to add to that, too, of, you know, in my mind, like I talked about earlier, the biggest thing of this may not be learning something new, but an inspiration every week that this is possible. And you guys moved away right. from home, away from away from an eighth, eight generation business to start from scratch in the mountains of Tennessee. And you've made a go of it and you've done quite well. And so, yeah, it, there's. There's no shortage of opportunities in this world if people are willing to do things different, work hard, and 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 uh, you know, and sacrifice maybe a little bit, but uh, it's rewarding too. That that is that is very true. The one other thing that I would say, and and you know, I'll I'll plug it now rather than later, but you know, the ranching for profit, which I think you have said you're going to next month. Is that right? Yeah. Yep, that's right. It is. It's it's impressive to me. I don't remember who it was, but one of the guys that you interviewed said that they send several of their employees there, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which I thought was very, very impressive. But it is, I think it's very, very important. And I haven't, you know, do it. This is one of those do as I say, not as I do. But I think it's very important for everybody that's involved in the management of the operation to go. And, and, and I don't care whether you're in the cow business, you're in crops. I think, I think the ranching for profit works across multiple disciplines and, 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 and enterprises and occupations, but you and your wife need to go. You don't have to go together, but you both need to go because I think, well, I know because I've experienced some of it and, and you're going to go if, if you go by yourself you'll go and you'll come back with all these great ideas that you think and then she's going to go are you nuts <laughs> we can't do that yeah and so you both need to go and i think that's one of the things that probably a lot of people miss out on and it's going to be difficult i mean did your did your dad go is that right yeah, yeah he went in february i was yeah. supposed to go with him but got sick so yep Right. And, and so I think that's one of the things that's good that you guys have done that is that mm-hmm. because you guys work together, you're going to both going to get different things out of the school because number one, you're in different stages of life, but you both need to go to be able to look at things through, through different lenses. You know, you've got, you've got your, the emotion that you have attached to something and your dad's got his, but you need to be able to set that aside and make a you know, purely logical decision, whether that's the, the avenue that you go down is immaterial, but you need to be able to make, have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really, really important to go to a, to go to the ranching for profit school, but to make sure, particularly if you're 
a, a, a husband and wife that mm -hmm. both of you go. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Yeah. I appreciate that. And that's, that's a good kind of segue into resources that I usually ask folks about. That's obviously going to be a good one is ranching for profit. What other resources would you recommend that people check out uh, that, you know, are maybe trying to do some of the same stuff you are? Well, I mean, obviously I'm going to give you a plug because one thing about listening to the podcast, your podcast over the last month has, it has been a reinvigoration of my passion for what we do. And so I think that's, whether you get that through your podcast or others, whether they're related to agriculture or not, I think that's something that people should be involved in and take mm -hmm. the time to do. Um, I read in it's probably the late 80s, Bert Smith, and I can't think of the name of the book. Bert? Wrote a book. Bert, Bert? Smith. Huh, never yeah. Heard of him. Um, and it was about grazing and animal husbandry, rotational grazing, just a general overview. And that was the thing that got me started. I mean, we started doing some rotational grazing back in the mid eighties at home. And, mm -hmm. and that was the thing that got me started. And so I think that's, you know, it was a good book, a good starter type primer type book. So that's one thing that and I wish I could think of the title. And I probably got it in the house somewhere. <laughs> Afterwards, I may email it to you or something, but yeah, yeah, please do. That, that would be one thing, obviously the ranching for profit. I think if you're in the cattle business, I think you should get on Kit's newsletter list. There's a lot of good information there. I mean, these are all things that, you know, that we have, you've had several people talk about mm -hmm. the Stockman grass farmer was hugely important to us getting started the wealth of information that Allen nation put out, especially during those early years and how relevant it was, was quite frankly, a godsend to us because that, that was the avenue of learning about people that were trying to do what we were doing that, you know, we couldn't just, you know, go down the road and, and, and talk to them over the hood of the pickup truck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, those would probably be the big things on my on my list. Um, no, if you have the opportunity to go to one of Kit's sales, I think you should go to the sale, go to the pre-sale meeting, go to the sale and just talk to people. It doesn't, you know, even if you're not buying a bull, mm -hmm. look at the bulls, listen to the program, talk to the people that are there just to get ideas about things that you can do differently mm -hmm. because that's, that's just important. More important than... Then we realize, and I think probably one of those things that as you get older, you probably tend to realize it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great list of resources. And I, I appreciate that. Um, last question is if people want to reach out to you or find more information about what you and your, your family are doing, um, where would they look and how would they find you? Probably the easiest way is email. And that's Darren, D-A-R-R-I-N at peacefulpastures.com. Awesome. They can always call us here at Peaceful Pastures. That phone number is 615-683-4291. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. There was a lot of great value there. And, and again, listen back uh, to episode 11 with Jenny to get the full picture of kind of their, their business together. Those two are 
will be a pretty awesome story that they they have to share and to to tell so thanks so much darren thanks jared i appreciate it the herd quitter podcast is brought to you by pharaoh cattle company whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business you can get more information on pharaoh cattle company at pharaohcattle.com and if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast be sure to subscribe and check us out on facebook and instagram at herd quitter podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.